The following conversation is with Seth, probably better known as Saffron Olive. Seth is a full-time magic content creator for MTG Goldfish. This is a deep dive into the art of YouTube, podcasting, and interacting with the magic community. A quick note, if you'd like to support what I do, please consider supporting Humans of Magic on Patreon, patreon.com slash humans of magic. For as little as $2 a month, you will give me the power to keep cranking out new episodes with your favorite magic people. Patreon link is in the description. Without further ado, this is Saffron Olive. Seth, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing wonderfully. I'm excited to get to chat again. It's It's been a while. We recorded once before forever ago, but uh, I had such a fun time. I'm excited to be back. I'm trying to remember, Is it was it pre-pandemic or was it during the <sighs> pandemic? It's It felt oh, like a boy. long time ago. It, it feels like a long time. I know you've started doing YouTube, right? I know it was before your YouTube era because it was just an audio-only cast. I don't remember if it was before the pandemic or during it. Everything The pandemic made everything kind of blur together a little bit on top of just the, the content creation grind, which tends to blur things together anyway. So I, I couldn't tell you if it was before or during, but it was a while ago for sure. It was definitely before the YouTube channel, so I'm coming up on one month, uh, one year anniversary of oh. the the Humans of Magic YouTube, and I'm still pretty bad at things overall. Um, actually, this is this this really be just the first question. It it's like, did you start? Because I remember when talking about your origins, you started off as a writer and then eventually got into the video side of things, right? Like how long yep. did it take for you to get comfortable in front of the camera, whether it's streaming or podcasting oh. or YouTubing? If you, so, so I did written stuff for like a year or two before video stuff really started like becoming a thing. And if you go back to my early video content, I actually wasn't on camera. There wasn't oh, so right. much it was an intentional yeah. choice. It was just like the voice in the gameplay. So that went on for quite a while before I eventually went on camera. Once I got on camera, um, it was definitely an adjustment uh, to get used to just like seeing your face there and like having to think about like not picking your nose or what, you know what I'm saying? Like you're, if people are actually seeing you and if you're not on screen, it's a, it's a little bit easier. You don't got to worry about, Oh, is my hair okay? Or like, well, how am I reacting to this? So it was definitely a, an adjustment period. I was actually thinking the other day that like, I've been doing this for a long time. Like it's been, I think my first article was about, the commander precon with true name nemesis which i think is commander 2013 so i think it's been almost 10 years since i started making magic content and just in the last year or two i feel like i've started to like figure out how to make good youtube content so it's it's been a long a long road to feel like i've actually starting to figure it out so it's definitely been a very long process is there stuff that you can share with me or maybe the past version of yourself 10 years ago, like what makes a good YouTube, what makes good YouTube content? I mean, I, I, I mean, there's so much, but it's just like, are there some general guidelines you might be able to provide me? Yeah. So I think, uh, for one thing, it's uh, being entertaining is very important on YouTube. That's something I didn't really connect with so much of magic content. When I started making YouTube magic content, is just like, here's a pro that plays a league for two and a half hours and throws it up on YouTube. And that was kind of the standard for for YouTube content. But I think YouTube really wants something that's more engaging than that and more like entertaining than that. So I've really started to focus more on like shortening my videos, trying to find a way to like do the same thing, but make it 20 minutes or 30 minutes instead of an hour and a half. So I think that's part of it. I think the titles of your videos are something I didn't realize how big of an impact that they have. I think there's this weird fine line you need to walk between clickable, but not clickbait. If that makes sense, the title needs to be honest. I hate clickbait. If you're lying in the YouTube title, that's a, that's a negative and it's going to make me not launch your content. So when I see the like hundred percent win rate broke, whatever, like <laughs> I'm kind of like, okay, come on, dude. Like, yeah, seriously. Like I, I get it. Like you're trying to get people to click, but you can make very good titles that make people want to click on your video that are also truthful and uh, in honest. So I think that's been something that I've really 
in the past, I would just be like, here's the deck name. I'm playing blue-white Panermonicon in Modern, throw it up on YouTube. But there's ways you can frame that that are going to make people be like, oh, maybe I should like uh, click on this video and see it. So that's something that's really, uh, I've really learned recently. And also, this I know is like very common advice, but your thumbnails are also like very important. I think that's another area that we've improved on a lot in the in the recent years. So I think those are the big ones. Basically, there's so much content on YouTube. There's so many hours of videos, even just in the magic community, which is a small community, there's so many different options that uh, finding a way to m make people want to choose your video out of the sea of other options is uh, is the big challenge. For sure. Um, just going into a bit of what you said, I think that that's actually one of the unfair advantages or disadvantages that you have, because when you do against the odds or certain brew videos, I think the premise itself is just already so strong to begin with, right? It's not like, you know, I'm just playing a regular deck and then I have to reverse engineer a compelling hook because you're already starting off with a creative idea that you believe people want to see or want to watch. Then yeah. I feel like that's that's got to be something like just since day one, that's always been part of like, it's almost like, that what you didn't do that with YouTube in mind, but YouTube also really rewards that. Would you say that's fair? Oh, that's definitely true. There's only like so many ways you can phrase uh, a title for I played a league with modern Jund that is like <laughs> honest and truthful. So I think there's certainly a natural advantage to be like, I'm doing this wild thing with these janky cards that no one's heard of because that by itself is a hook and it makes it very easy, I think, or easier to come up with a like an engaging title and an engaging thumbnail and so forth. The other thing that I find really interesting is that I, I believe Goldfish has a has a very talented artist who does uh, a lot of the uh, the art in general, including thumbnails. So does that mean that doing better thumbnails, you're also giving the artist more uh, guidance on what it should be, or like there's a certain direction, almost like giving art direction to uh, a magic artist for doing a card or something. So. A little bit. So Adriano Catani, who does all of our thumbnail art and is an amazing artist. Uh, he also does like commissions and stuff. So look him up if you ever need artwork for stuff. He's really good. Um, but he's really, really good. I try not to give him too much direction because he's just so naturally talented. But I can give you an example of something that we changed. This might be a year ago now. So Adriano makes this great art. And a lot of it is interpreting magic characters in his style. So if you're playing Liliana in your deck, he's going to have his like kind of caricature of Liliana in the artwork. But one of the things we realized is it didn't look very magic-y. Like if you didn't really know who Lily, you'd have to really know who Liliana was and then kind of know who we were, Adriana were, if you saw the thumbnail art to know, okay, this is a magic video rather than whatever else it is. So we we made a change where we incorporated card frames into the, into the thumbnails just to send the message to people very clearly, okay, this is magic content. So Adriano still has free reign to do whatever he wants, but the idea is most thumbs now will hopefully have like some magic card frames with the character like coming out of them or whatever it, just because the card frame is such a recognizable thing as part of magic that even if you're not someone who knows Liliana and you're a new player or whatever you see that and you're like oh this is a magic video because I know what a magic card looks like so that's that's uh, an example of one of the things that we've changed but really for the most part Adriano just has free reign to do what he thinks best and it usually turns out amazing that's a great example of a, a tweak like how, how did you guys realize that is it like was there was there some feedback or is it just like one day when a person woke up and was just like, that's, that's, that's the tweak. So we decided that we wanted to try to like optimize our YouTube videos more. That's something actually, one of the things that brought a lot of this, uh, around is, uh, Phil joining the goldfish crew, uh, brewer's kitchen. So Phil, I don't know if you know, Phil, he'd actually probably be a very interesting, he has an interesting journey into magic creation. If you ever are looking for someone else to talk to, but Phil, um, he started his own YouTube channel. Uh, why he was in college actually for a college prod, uh, project and he would post videos like once a month and it was this amazingly well edited like 10 minute video 
of some sort of weird deck doing gameplay stuff. And I saw the video and it was this channel with like no subs that it just, it blew me away. I was like, this is the highest quality like magic content I think I've ever seen anyone make as far as gameplay. So I reached out to him, we started talking and it turned out that he finished college and was like trying to figure out what to do with his life. And it worked out that he could join the goldfish team. And he really is into YouTube. Like he's always been into optimizing YouTube. How can I tweak things? He'll spend days like working on his thumbnail to get it exactly how he wants it. He'll spend a week editing the video to get it exactly how he wants it. So really I think Phil's influence of coming on the team and just having this mind for like YouTube optimization brought a lot of these conversations about like, okay, how can we optimize our thumbnails? What else can we do with our titles to like optimize that? So I think it was kind of a group effort with Phil joining the team being the thing that kind of like spurred us to think more about the optimization stuff and those tweaks. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And is Phil, I'm not super familiar with Phil, is he mostly a behind the scenes person at this point? Or is he also just uh, still putting out his own videos and things like that? So the, the problem with Phil videos is he's such a meticulous and amazing editor that it takes him about three weeks to make a single like 10, 15 minute video. So right. he's still making Taking content. Taking time for that the, masterpiece, yeah. Yeah, he's every piece is a masterpiece. Every frame has to be exactly how he wants it. So he's still making content at the same pace he always was. It's just a, a slower pace than the rest of the crew because I'm making like two or three gameplay videos a week and then other videos. Krim's doing three gameplay videos a week. So he does behind the scenes stuff where he's helping with animations, artwork, uh, optimization stuff. But he's also still making his his content that comes out roughly every like three weeks at this point usually mm -hmm. Be because you have someone like phil on the team now i imagine actually this is kind of a leading question but i can't assume anything is, is analytics has it become a huge thing like is the goldfish team just looking at you know for example you mentioned you know making tweaks to the videos or like doing things in a different way like how important is the role of analytics in driving what goldfish does in terms of the video content so that part i think is kind of always been there i've always loved analytics richard who founded the site also loves stats and analytics so we've always kind of viewed things analytically so it's always been like a big part of how we look at things but i think phil uh joining the team has also made that even more of a focus but yeah analytics is youtube is very funny like because of how the comments work on YouTube, you get a lot of immediate feedback whenever you post something. But a lot of that feedback is contradictory. If you read through any YouTube video, you'll see like one person saying, there. I on absolutely a smaller scale, hate but this I've been thing there. you yes. did. And then the next person down is saying, I absolutely love that same exact thing. So how do you wade through this feedback that's contradictory? And I think the answer is like, the analytics. And that's what's really gonna show like who wins out there. Like, are people watching? Are they clicking off? of the video at the point where this thing that everyone's talking about happened. So I think that analytics for me is definitely, the feedback matters. And I, I'm not one of those people who's like, never read the YouTube comments. I'm in the like, always read every comment <laughs> camp. So I try to read every comment and take in all the feedback. But when it comes down to it, the analytics are what will win out for me compared to the feedback. So uh, maybe the easiest example is when Arena launched. When Arena launched, we started doing standard videos on Arena instead of on Moto, and people hated it. There were so many people downvoting, complaining, just like old timers that didn't like Arena, they like Moto better. Uh, but it turned out that that feedback was kind of a small minority of the audience. And we kept doing the videos because the analytics showed that people were still watching them. People weren't actually like clicking away. And eventually after a few months, the feedback kind of shifted and arena was fine and no one cared about it anymore. So I think the analytics are very important as a way to contextualize the feedback you get in the comments or on Twitter or wherever you're getting your feedback from. Mm -hmm. So in some ways there's truth to it's what they do, not what they say, right? I mean, I think that that is definitely true. At the same time, like if I post something and I have all the comments are saying the same thing, they're, there's they're probably, probably a signal they're there. Probably, yeah. yeah, there's something going on there. But when it comes to those situations where it's mixed and some people are saying one thing, some people are saying the other, I think the analytics is, is what I go with in those situations. Mm -hmm. This is a really insider question, but I'm also wondering if, don't reveal anything that's a secret sauce, but is has there been an, a sort of, have you guys figured it out? Like you must have had some videos that perform better than others. So therefore you can, is there some sort of formula that develops? Like this is what it takes to make a, an amazing, like super 
popular if not viral uh magic video like these are the ingredients uh is that something that has been sort of battle tested internally you don't have to say like what that is but i'm just wondering like is there something in your back pocket that as a goldfish team you'd know like this is going to be a hit I wish it was as easy as that, but it's still really not. I think there's definitely things that I've learned and that we've learned that makes it more likely that a video will be a hit or be popular. But when it comes down to it, there's still a lot of unknowns with uh, the audience, with the YouTube algorithm. So sometimes you have a video that you think is going to be a hit and all the things you feel like you've done in the, the best way possible. And then it just isn't for whatever reason. Like uh, we did a video like a year ago about um, the 10 times that magic has shown up in pop culture. And it was going through like movies and like the South Park TV show and stuff like that. And the, the editing was really good. I thought the title was really good. Everything about it was like, okay, this should be a video that even non-magic players might want to watch. Mass appeal, uh, right? Yeah. yeah, you got the mass appeal. Casual players would like it. For, and franchise players might like it. And the video, like it did okay, but it, it wasn't the the banger that everyone expected it to be. I still, to this day, don't know why. Maybe the algorithm didn't, uh, algorithm didn't like it. Maybe we did something wrong that we didn't realize. So you can get a sense of like, I think this is gonna be a good video, but then you put it out there and cross your fingers and hope for the best still. So no, we, we definitely don't have it all figured out. We've definitely learned a ton, but there's no, I wish I could just tell you the secret sauce of like, here, do these things and your video will go viral. <laughs> you but... know, some people make a living doing that on YouTube. You know, the YouTube on how to YouTube is a very yeah. real meta, right? Yeah, so <laughs> it is there's yeah there is for sure <laughs> how how to get how to get rich and famous uh write a book on how to get rich and famous and and distribute and then it. you end up yeah and it, and it, I, I guess it kind of works <laughs> yeah um there's an adjacent question here though which is yes you said that there's there's no secret right there's no one thing like obviously everything is like a probability hit like okay you yeah. try to do the things to maximize probability but it's still a probability. It's not deterministic. But the adjacent question is, when you have something that does land in terms of, wow, this, this like, maybe it was expected, maybe unexpected, like I hit it out of the park or we hit it out of the park. Like, is there this sort of internal pressure to try to replicate it, right? Like, let's say that you think that there are ingredients A, B, and C to making a hit. And, and is that something that, you feel pressured as a team to like go back to almost. Yeah, I can, I can see that sometimes with, with like a a thumbnail or something where we have a thumbnail on a video and that video ends up doing better than we expected. And then everyone's like, wow, we should try to like kind of replicate that thumbnail and do it again, because maybe that was the thing that made this video do so well. Or replace every thumbnail with that, that style. (laughs) Turn it all into that. Yeah. So there's, there is like some pressure there. Uh, for sure. I think for me, it's really about just learning from the good and the bad. Like when you have a video that does really well, try to learn something from that. And when you have a video that doesn't do as well as you were hoping, you can also learn maybe even more from, from the failures than you can for the successes. And then hopefully if you keep doing that every video and keep improving as you go along, because you learn something every time you're posting a piece of content, that eventually you'll get to that point where more consistently your videos are doing well and less of them are flopping. So I, I think it's really a, a learning experience. So um, this is, again, a very insider question. But in the latest podcast episode, you mentioned wanting to spin the very meta question, spinning the podcast itself into a new channel. I'm just wondering, like, what goes into those kinds of decisions, you know, like because there's the there's the typical adage for YouTubers, which is like, you know, you want a channel to be a specific domain. And if it's a little bit different, maybe having a secondary one, especially after you've had a certain amount of volume or viewership on one on the main one. Is that again, leading question? Is that is that the was that the rationale? Or are there other considerations for wanting to do a separate channel for the the podcast? So that's actually, it's really, it's really, uh, pretty simple for that one so 
every day on the YouTube, except for Sunday, and even some Sundays when Phil has a video, we have a, some sort of gameplay video that goes up at like 11 a.m. Eastern time. The podcast we record on Mondays, and we want it to get live as soon as possible. Usually we record it, and the audio cast goes up right away, but we found that if we post like the gameplay video and then post the podcast a couple hours after that, yeah. it kind of cannibalizes the gameplay video, and the podcast oh, isn't very popular. Oh, your problem is you have too much content. So I we see. have, yeah, kind of too much content going up at the same time. So the solution to that was putting the podcast on its own channel and having a, a podcast channel so we weren't double posting, essentially, uh, at the around the same time on the same day. That makes a lot of sense. And that is a problem that I suppose many people do not have. <laughs> but yeah. you're a large, large outfit. You're a large studio yeah. in a way, right? Kind yeah. of a unique problem with having multiple creators that are each doing things in a, in a lot of content. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to shift gears and also talk about the the podcast. This is away from the YouTube stuff, which we 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 had a number of questions on that just now. But like, I just feel like you and your co-hosts have well, actually, two things. First of all, I feel like Richard has gotten so much better as a podcaster over time. Uh, just listening to him, like it just seems yeah. like I think I think it's it it just speaks to like the more you do it, the better you get. And I'm not I'm not saying anything negative here. I'm just saying oh, that yeah. like the evolution of everybody but especially richard for me has been like really lovely to hear or to see right um but the second thing is that i feel like the team has really great chemistry i'm just curious to know like a little bit of behind the scenes stuff like how how did you guys develop that that chemistry is it through just sheer reps or like how like it seems like in a lot of episodes even though there's multiple people in the room you're able to play off of each other so well so i'm curious to know like is there something special going on behind the scenes i mean so i think we all like our personalities kind of click and everyone kind of has their different role that they fill in something like the podcast so i think that's part of it but really i think the bigger thing is just it really is the reps we've just been so i've been doing stuff with richard for almost a decade now crim's been here for well boy five years now maybe four years like quite a while tomer's been around for a while so we've just all been doing podcasts and like commander gameplay recordings together for so long that eventually you just learn <laughs> learn about your uh, your co-hosts and like kind of can sense it's the like finishing each other's sentences type thing you hear couples say sometimes when you're just you do it so much you get used to the cadence and how other people uh, do their thing and i think that is a lot to do with it and i think richard i totally agree on richard i think richard never really intended to make content richard is like the programmer guy and that's like who he is so i don't think his yeah. goal was ever to like really be a content creator we've been he loves jund and modern we've been trying to get him to like just do a video like playing modern jund for like five years now and he just he that's not really his thing so i think mm -hmm. a lot of it is uh is practice with him too and just becoming more comfortable with the content side of things since he was coming from like kind of more the back end stuff and doing content more out of necessity than having a goal to do content was it tough to even get him to do the podcast in the first place? I'm curious, like, what's the origin story or the or the story behind that? The podcast, the original Goldfish podcast, started pretty randomly. There was uh, Chaz was someone who uh, we knew and did like magic finance content. This was almost a decade ago now. This and is he just Chaz random... Andres. Is that is that? No, this is a this is another another, another chance. If you go back to the who happens to do MTG finance. Who Sorry, my bad. To do finance used to do MTG finance. I don't think he's really involved in uh in the finance community anymore. But he just uh we knew him from the magic internet, and he pitched the idea of a podcast. And we're like, yeah, that sounds kind of fun. We might as well try. And this was just back in the the very beginnings of the uh, goldfish doing content. So there was no like expectations or anything of just kind of like hey we like talking about magic we like each other we might as well do a podcast so it kind of started pretty randomly which i guess is the the story of most of my content and rather than being some <laughs> intentional thing we set out to do it just kind of like happened to happen to fall together and got lucky mm -hmm. yeah and uh maybe similar to question similar question as the youtube one like is there something that you would tell yourself if you could go back in time and just talk to the younger seth like are, is there advice that you might give the seth that started podcasting who what would my advice be to to the younger seth hmm man i actually don't have a a good answer to that i feel like 
Yeah, I actually don't have a good answer to that. I, I've caught you speechless for the first time <laughs> today. I always have something to say, but you got me with that one. <laughs> Maybe just put in reps, right? Or just, just yeah, I, I guess mean, it's it's not easy, it's right? Like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like anything that practice is going to going to make you better. I, like, I, I come from, like, uh, playing music. I love music. I played in bands. I learned instruments. And I view magic content very much the same way. I don't think I realized that at the time when I started. But if you just keep doing something you're going to get better at it so i think that would be the be the advice is just keep practicing it it'll it'll end up uh you'll get there eventually any um fun behind the scenes stories when it comes to the podcast has there been like one any memorable uh <laughs> re-recordings or like last minute things or just even unexpected <sighs> reactions from the community on or maybe you get that every week so it's just like it's just normal now like so, just anything. Yeah. So some of uh, I think some of the most memorable ones are uh we usually try to do Magic Con Vegas. Uh every year is like a team that's we go because we want to do the Magic Con, but it's also like we're all scattered around the world and around the country. So it's the one time a year that everyone like gets together in person for uh for a few days. And part of that's trying to record the the podcast live in a hotel room, which is very tricky anyway, when you want to have like everyone on camera and you're just using laptops and whatever happens to be in your, you know, Vegas hotel room. Uh, and it's also mostly like trying to wake Krim up. That's probably the best, the best and most <laughs> consistent story of the podcast is like Krim lives on like the he's, a, he's a night person. I take he's, it. Yeah, he, he's the night person. So that we record the podcast at like 10 a.m. his time, which is apparently like the middle of his night because he wants to be sleeping to like two or something because he stays up all night streaming. So it's usually that's the biggest challenge of the podcast is just like, can we can we actually wake Krim up to get in there? We all have his numbers so we can like call him and try to wake him up. And yeah, so that's the that's the constant challenge is can we wake Krim up and get him there so if you ever see Krim looking a little sleepy during the podcast it's probably because we just you know, literally made him roll out of bed to record <laughs> <laughs> what about just in terms of uh, in terms of like outlining because I feel like that's a big part of podcasting in general is like figuring out what are we going to talk about like how does that process work for you folks at goldfish is it is there one person that sets the table is it like a collaborative thing like like talk me walk me through how that what that's like so so we do two podcasts we have the commander clash podcast and then the the goldfish podcast uh the commander clash podcast is much more planned out there's kind of a, a commander theme that we're talking about each week that we'll know a week or two ahead of time so we can kind of prepare. The Goldfish podcast, though, is a, a little bit more fly by the seat of your pants where we usually we record on Mondays and we usually come up with topics Monday morning based on whatever the news of the past week has been or have there been spoilers? Is there something everyone's talking about? Uh, was there a big tournament? So a lot of it is with the Goldfish cast. I would say that like probably 80% of it is me coming up with like the outline of here's the topics, but it's also open to feedback from everyone on the cast. If there's something Krim or Richard really wants to talk about, we have a, an ongoing just discord chat for the podcast where as things come up through the week, like just put in any topics that you think we might want to top, uh, talk about. And then we, we figure out which ones make the final cut before we cast on Monday. So is it fair to say that most of the topics are, they ha they're they're news related, right? Like with some sort of announcement or news, because at least that's how I interpret it as a consumer of the the regular podcast. Most of the most of the Goldfish cast is pretty newsy. Yeah, it's kind of the the last week in Magic, more or less. What's been going on, ranging from new sets or announcements to tournaments or whatever. But yeah, it's it's mostly news focused. We had a few episodes where sometimes there's slow weeks where there's just not really much happening to talk about, and we'll talk about like uh, one topic, like the modern ban list or something like that, and kind of go through that. But most of the time, it's it's very newsy. The last week of what's happened in the world of Magic. Right on. Um... Yeah, I'm just wondering if you still have any other like stories that come to mind about the making of the podcast or just just I don't know, like uh -huh. uh, so <laughs> the live recording is definitely a, a good a good way for the everyone to gather for sure. But like, are there other fun tidbits or <laughs> stories? Oh. Yeah, I mean, so we've definitely had the the disaster scenario where something goes wrong mid recording and you lose the whole thing and you got to stop uh, start the whole thing over. That's hasn't happened too many times, but there's been two or three times where uh, someone loses power in the middle of the the recording and their thing crashes. We've had people forget to like turn on their recordings so we don't have their audio and have to redo it. So there's been a few times like that. Um, 
other than that, like honestly, it's like pretty, pretty smooth, right? It's like there's no, smooth. there's no like I need to re-record the whole episode because I said something crazy or nothing well, like that. You guys, and are it's pros. also, and it's also edited, so it's not live. So we do edit the podcast after the fact. So if something too crazy, I, I don't know if there's. I'm trying to think if there's ever been something that we actually edited out that was like said during the podcast and after we were like, eh, we probably shouldn't include that. I think it's happened a, a couple of times when there's been like some controversy and someone like had a take and afterwards they're like, and eh, second thought, like, I don't know if I actually want that to be my take. But for the most part, uh, we're, I think we're pretty, pretty good about that. That's good. And, uh, Who's your who's who's the who's your favorite out of all your co-hosts and and to podcast with and why? Oh man. I mean, I think it's I think it's got to be Richard. We've just like been doing this for so long together. I think we have really good chemistry. He has uh he has very good takes on things and in, he has unique takes about things, which I think is really good for a podcast. The way he views uh w- the way he views things is often different than the way I view things or even like the community at large views things. And uh, it's really nice to get a different perspective. And that helps the podcast like actually be entertaining when everyone doesn't agree about everything all the time. So I, I love all everyone that I, uh, <laughs> that po- I podcast with everyone like does a great job, but I think Richard is probably my favorite just cause we've been doing it for so long together. What do you think goes into a good take? Like, what is it? What is it? What does it take to have a good take? Like what are there certain, ingredients for for that hmm so i think a a good take needs to be authentic like that's i think that's number one like if you're just saying something even though you don't really mean it because you think it's gonna like get traction or cause a conversation uh i think that makes it a bad take even if you're rewarded for that by people clicking on it or whatever in the long run, the reputation you gain from that is going to outweigh any like short term gains you get from people like interacting with that take. So I think first you actually have to mean it. That's the that's the biggest thing. It has to actually be how you feel about the the conversation. Authentic, as you authentic. Said. Yeah, that's that's number one. And then I think ideally it'll be your authentic take will be different than what everyone else is saying. If your take is the same as the top post on Reddit and what everyone else is saying, like that take is already so well known that it's just not as interesting. Obviously, sometimes that's going to be actually what your authentic take is, and that's fine, and that should be your take. But when your take is, I think the best example is like, Richard just honestly believes Swords to Plowshares is bad in Commander. He thinks it's bad. He thinks targeted removal shouldn't be played in Commander. And that's so against the grain of what everyone else thinks about the format that it actually ends up generating a lot of interesting conversation. It's actually interesting, yes. Yeah. And, so and I think he actually believes it, it seems like. And yeah. he backs that up. If you look at his commander decks, he doesn't play Swords to Plowshares in his commander decks because he just really believes that it's not a card you should be playing. So I think that's an example. Like, authentic but also unique is, like, what leads to the to the best takes on things. Mm-hmm. So those are the two main elements, right? Yeah. That For me, I think that's that's what makes the best takes. Yeah. Now, now this is where I ask you, like, you're you're known for being pretty much like, uh, I shouldn't say you're known for it, but how I interpret it is that you're not afraid to put yourself out there. That's that's who Seth, better known as Saffron Olive, <laughs> is. Like, if you are thinking about something, you want to just put it out there. Like, how do you have a process for? Tweeting or expressing certain things? Is it like, do you just wake up every morning and just like, there's like three thoughts in your head and you're just like, I just want to get these, these things out because there might be interesting to share? Like, or do you have a notebook of takes that you're rotating through that you're ideating? Like, how does it work for your, your process? Oh, I, I probably should have a process for this, but it really is the like, Hey, this popped into my, or I'm reading something about magic on the internet somewhere, some old article and something pops into my head and I'm just going to, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm just going to tweet it. Or I, I think about magic all the time. I think that's part of like being a magic content creator is that's just something that I'm always thinking about. And when I think of something that I find interesting, I just kind of, just kind of throw it up there. Uh, so yeah, my process is kind of very impulsive, I guess. And there's not a whole lot of process. I think I'm comfortable with it though, because I'm a big believer. You've seen some things uh, sometimes in, in the content community where someone says something that's like messed up or wrong uh, and, and they get very punished for it rightly. 
my belief is if you don't say those things in your personal life, the things that are offensive and going to like draw the ire of a lot of people, if you practice just not, if that's not who you are, that's not what you see in your personal life, it's unlikely that that's going to randomly come out in uh, in your content. You're not going to have a, a heated gamer moment or whatever if you're not someone who's like just saying that stuff and practicing saying that stuff in your personal life. So I'm pretty comfortable tweeting and putting takes out there impulsively just because the it's kind of I don't worry too much about saying something that's going to like be offensive or whatever just because that's what I practice in my personal life so I don't think it's going to accidentally come out in one of my impulsive takes hopefully I see so I, I'm taking that to be like if you are who you are in real life and you are basically just try to have something similar for online then there yeah. shouldn't be too many problems it's kind of like it, what you said about the nature of a take like if you're being inauthentic because you're doing something online that becomes potentially problematic. Yeah, exactly. It really all does come down to authenticity. I think that's the most important thing with all of this stuff. So if you're trying to make your online persona different than who you are in in your day-to-day -day life, that's eventually gonna lead to problems because uh, those two things are gonna clash. But if your online persona is just who you are, it makes it a lot easier because you can, uh, <laughs> you can be authentic in both. Yeah. Um... Having said that, though, as someone who's really publicly known in in, ma in the magic community or magic content creation, whenever you express a take, uh, I would have to assume <laughs> sometimes reading some of the direct replies, like there are people that have reactions to things like how how does your mind process the deluge of feedback that comes back when you do anything online because i i'm the the background for this is that i'm a, i'm at a much smaller scale than you but even i sometimes feel like it's too much so like how do you how do you deal with that like just just do you have any tips or perspectives on on this i think one of them is you have to be okay with occasionally not dealing with it <laughs> sometimes on social media there's so many responses to something and this isn't talking about something that's like controversial or wrong or whatever but you just get so much feedback because there's so many people that are interacting with you that sometimes you do just need to be okay with uh with shutting down your social media for the day just for the sake of your own mental health i i think i actually learned this from something lsv said i think at one point lsv said like basically something to the extent of like i only respond to what i feel like responding to or something and i kind of thought about it and i was like actually when you get so much feedback and so many responses i guess that's just kind of a necessity like i want to try to i would love to interact with every single person that responds to something i say on twitter but it's just not possible at some point i try to like answer every single email i get i try to respond to as many things as possible but sometimes you just can't because you have other things going on so i think you got to be okay with uh with sometimes just being able to disengage i think mm -hmm. you also got to know that there's going to be people who love what you do and there's going to be people who hate what you do no matter what you do like that's that's the nature of the internet that's the nature of making content and i think you just have to you have to accept that i think that's uh, when someone says uh, i hate whatever you just made i think you got to know that that's just the opinion of one person on the internet and that doesn't devalue you as a person or even your piece of content on the same level if everyone's saying they love your thing you also got to take that with a grain of salt that they're your super fans who really love you. And that doesn't, you know, make you uh, some superhero or something. So I think being able to uh, take it for what it is, words that people say on the internet is very important. The, that's the, that's the, the biggest way to look at it because people say a lot of stuff on the internet and not all of it is actually meaningful in the end. It's very easy to put things out on the internet and you have to be able to parse through what actually has, has some meaning behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned hearing about, you know, different perspectives from folks like LSV, but I I'm still wondering, like, how does you come up with your heuristics or what you just said? Like, is it through experience? Is it like, how, how did you come upon like how did you come up with these conclusions so i've always i guess i've always been around the internet and like i met richard through actually writing stuff on reddit so i'm kind of 
in some sense used to the internet and what people say on the internet. So for me, it's always been kind of easy to take some things with a grain of salt, whether it be negative or positive. So I think that's just kind of carried over into, uh, into the content. The other thing I've learned, uh, I think is being able to respond to someone who's very negative lightheartedly or with some humor is often like the best way to kind of diffuse the situation and get it back in line. I think another huge challenge that I've learned is it's very okay to ignore things. Like there's, when someone says something negative about your content, it's very easy to kind of knee jerk reaction, want to defend yourself. I just did all this work to make this video and you're telling me you don't like this about it. So it's very, uh, the, the natural human reaction is to like, okay, I got to tell this person how they're wrong. Cause I really feel passionately about this thing I made just letting it go and just not saying anything is often the right course of action, I think, in situations like that. One thing I've learned is sometimes when you do address those things, you actually make them a bigger topic that snowballs even further. So sometimes you're you're better off just letting the negative feedback go rather than trying to defend yourself or even responding to it at all. Yeah. I think, but I think, I it's think that's mostly Discretion is a better part of valor in a way, yes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely true. But I think a lot of it's just experience too like i think my personality makes it easy because i just don't don't really take uh, things people say on the internet to heart whether it be positive or negative so i think that's a natural advantage but a lot of it's just interacting with youtube and twitter and reddit for for a long time now so you just get used to how people are on there yeah well thank you for answering these questions because i've been oh, yeah. Uh, it's been challenging for me this year. It's just, just as I have, you know, just a little bit of growth, I just feel like there's things that I'm finding out for the first time and I'm not a young guy anymore. So it's like for some things to happen to me, uh, for the first time, it just feels like sometimes my human brain can't, can't handle it. So it's just like, I, I, I struggle with it sometimes. It's just, just, you know, uh, how online to be. And I've, I've kind of just landed now on just you know, just maybe like you said, just, just, uh, or what you told me before recording, like just take things with a grain of salt, like take some breaks once in a while and just, you don't, don't feel compelled to, um, to have to like answer everything. Right. It's just, yeah. uh, you're it's, it's impossible. So. And I don't even know if our brains are designed for this, honestly. Like, I think it just like, if you look at human history, for most of our history, we we interacted with very small groups of people that were in our local area. We didn't have internets and telephones. So I think technology has progressed faster than evolution. Like, I, 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 like you mentioned your brain maybe not being able to handle some stuff. I don't know if any of our brains can. Like, I, I don't know if our brains are built to handle the amount of interaction that social media and, uh, and the internet actually gives us. So I think that's I think that's just the, the human condition to some extent at this point where technology has just outpaced our, our brains. And what I also find really uh, interesting, and I think this is also my bias when I view your tweets, is like I always feel like your intent is quite clear. I always feel like you do just have this like enthusiasm for the game or just this curiosity about magic that shines through in all of your content like i feel like that is the overriding if i may, may dare say the saffron olive brand is like this curiosity and 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 with curiosity comes questioning as well of course um i feel like the intent is very consistent but also something i've learned for myself recently is that it seems really maybe this is like very self-serving, but sometimes I feel like even when your intent appears to be broadcast well, people still uh, don't assume you have that intent. Like, it's almost like, I don't know if this is like a form of bad faith or it's just like, or it's just like, how can you expect anyone to understand someone else's intent? Like, I, I don't, I, you know you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's really, yeah. like that part is the thing that really, um, that I find really hard to reconcile with, if you understand what I mean. I, I definitely do. Yeah, those are some of the most the most frustrating aspects where you feel like your intent should be clear, but then there's some people who just view it in completely the opposite direction. I think it's just a different like people have different experiences. That's how I try to think of it. Like they the person who is not getting that intent, they must for some reason their their experiences just don't allow them to see the topic in the same way that I do. So I 
I think that's just unavoidable uh, to some extent, but it can definitely be be frustrating when you put something out there where you feel like, oh, it's very clear that this is what I'm saying and this is what I'm meaning, and someone manages to take the exact opposite way. I think in some cases it is actual just bad faith or trolling, but I think in a lot of cases there's just someone that views it in a different way. And in some cases, it's probably my fault where my communication is not as clear as it could have been. Whenever situations like that arise, I try to go back and like, read the content, read the tweet and be like, okay, should I have worded this in a different way? Is there some way I could have put this where I'm saying the same thing, but it's coming across clear to even more people. Like there's always going to be some people who are, you know, engaging in bad faith or trolling or just don't get it. But I want to reach as many people as possible. Like the, the more effectively I can communicate the higher percentage of people I can read. So I, I think whenever those situations come up, I do try to like, see if there's a grain of truth in them. I know my intent. And when someone's like, no, this isn't your intent. You mean the exact opposite thing. I know that that's just not true because I'm me and I know what my intention was, but I still try to read through that and be like, okay, is there something I could have done differently? It goes back to that. Just like, learning from every 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 piece of content every tweet whether it be negative or positive try to try to get something from it it's the same way tree magic like you go in 05 a league with a deck you can still learn something from that experience that'll help you the next deck you play and i think i treat content and social media the same way so even if it's negative don't take it to heart and let it ruin your day but just see like is there anything i could have done differently is there a little kernel of truth in this take that seems like it might be bad faith or just trolling or whatever Mm-hmm. I know you said that you're a very, you've been a very online person for a long time and you're, you're used to some of this stuff, but just in terms of the, the landscape, like, are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to the nature of the internet and online social interactions? Oh boy. That's such a, that's such a tough topic. So I think the internet has allowed for a ton of great things and social media has opened doors that were just never going to be uh, opened without it. So I think that there's a huge amount of positive stuff from it, but I think there's also like a lot of negatives. I think in some ways it, re- it reminds me of universes beyond in magic, like universes <laughs> Universe is beyond like there are uh, there's uh, drawbacks and there's benefits. There's things that I see and I'm like, wow, okay, this is great. This is bringing new players into the game. This is like doing all this amazing stuff. But then there's also costs where you're kind of like diminishing your brand or diminishing your lore uh, and there's players that you're angering. Uh, so, uh, and you hope that the the benefits outweigh the drawbacks. And that's kind of where I'm at with social media and the internet. Like there's a lot of horrible stuff. There's been a lot of great things to come out of it. I, I think I'm an optimist and I'm hoping that the, the benefits outweigh the drawbacks, but I definitely know that both of those exist. Like there's, there's downsides and upsides and I just cross my fingers and hope that the good outweighs the bad, whether or not that's how it turns out. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry if this has been repeated already in your podcast or your tweets, but what is your take on universes beyond? So. I, oh boy. Uh, So I'm someone who didn't come into Magic with a huge focus on the lore. When I first started playing Magic, what drew me in was the greatness of the game. Like just how well the game played. And I think I said at one point that when I first started playing, I would have been just as fine playing with a deck of playing cards with the magic mechanics as the actual like dragons and flavor or whatever. Like that just isn't what, I didn't come from like, the fantasy community. I didn't grow up like doing the fantasy thing. So for me, it was the game that drew me in. So uh, all this to preface what I'm about to say that I'm not like the biggest Vorthos person and the flavor thing has never been my most important concern. I've grown to love it a lot more as I played magic for the past almost two decades now. Uh, So that's something that's grown on me. But I will say like, there's legitimate concerns. I can see the legitimate concerns about universes beyond. I think it does diminish the magic brand to some extent. I was thinking about it the other day. Like if you look at Hasbro, it seems like they treat their franchises in in one of two ways. They either like treat them like Transformers, where Transformers, they splatter all over everything and sell lunch boxes and make movies and you see Transformers all over the place. Or they treat them like Monopoly, where you have Monopoly and then they use Monopoly to put other IPs on and sell NFL Monopoly and Fortnite Monopoly. I feel like right. magic is becoming more of the monopoly when 
a few years ago, I thought Magic was going to be the Transformers with the talk of like, okay, we're going to do a Netflix show. It seemed like the goal was to like make Magic characters into these superheroes and then you could license out for video games, then you could put on lunchboxes, then you could make TV shows and movies of. But it seems like that switched and now Magic is in the, the Monopoly mode where Magic's a great game and you can put other IPs on that game and sell that IP to the fans of those games and make even more money. Whether, like, both of those trajectories have merits, and I see the upside of the Monopoly mode, which is, I've seen just in the last few months, so many people come into my stream, come into the YouTube and say, I just started playing Magic because I love Lord of the Rings, and now I want to know more about this game. Or, I used to play Magic 20 years ago, then I saw this Lord of the Rings thing, there was an article about the One Ring, and now I want to pick it up again. So it certainly is bringing new players into the game, which is I think is really important. That's the thing that I like most about it. On the other hand, I think it does make it harder to ever have Magic have a TV show, ever have Magic, like, be that IP that's being, you know, plastered all over the place and growing to that extent. So I think there's a cost. I'm still at the point where I think the costs, I think the benefits outweigh the cost. I know, for me, the biggest example was the Fortnite secret lair drop, which I think was the most maligned by the Magic community. Out of all the secret layers, all the universes beyond, Fortnite was the one that everyone memed on. It's like a kid's game. Magic players don't care about it. And for me, that was a way that I could introduce my little 12-year-old nephew to the game because he loves Fortnite. And he, like, was one of his favorite games. And I'd be like, hey, look at these Magic cards. They have Fortnite characters. And he thought that was cool. And that, like, got him into the idea of Magic because of this universes beyond. So, mm -hmm. again, costs and, costs and benefits. But I, I think, hopefully, that... The new players universes beyond brings in will outweigh the downside of diminishing the the ip and the brand a bit you mentioned something interesting that i that i uh i agree with which is like it seems to be a shift away from the magic ip almost like maybe a mission is too strong a word but almost like an admission that whatever was we were trying before didn't quite land so let's just rely on final fantasy and these things to perhaps pave the way, at least in terms of uh, new players discovering the game. Like, yeah. do you have any theories or ideas as to why the like the main magic characters and storylines just never was able to find that traction to actually, you know, make the TV show a reality and things like that? I mean, there's certainly been some well-known issues with the Magic storyline over the years, which maybe played into it with, like, Chandra Nissa stuff. There was some, I think it was the War of the Spark book was just, like, got such horrible reviews just for, like, how it was mm. written and the whole storyline of it. So I think at some point, like, maybe Wizards just, <laughs> maybe Wizards just realized that, like, if the, the storyline and the lore is going to be such a such a controversial thing and we're gonna get all this negative feedback about it maybe it's just not worth making that a big thing but at the same time we've seen like the stories being released for free on the website now so it's not like they've completely moved away from lore i guess maybe they just realized it it wasn't actually gonna work kind of like the mpl where we we're gonna be a top five mm. esport we're gonna do this thing we gave it our shot and it, it didn't work, so now we're going to go another direction. And maybe that's kind of the, the TLDR with the, like, the Gatewatch and all the Planeswalkers and this push towards, like, making a Planeswalker-based TV show. And then it turns out that it just, like, ended up kind of flopping. Players maybe didn't like the characters as much as Wizards would have hoped, and now we're going in a in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's um, to me, it feels like they're just kind of, they're still hedging their bets. Like they're still like, let's see if you know the multi the the magic IP can get somewhere. Oh, In the meantime, yeah. like here's some gateway products, and uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully it works out, right? Because we all want the game to continue to uh, succeed and get new players in. The question is long term for me. Like I think short term it is succeeding. We see like Lord of the Rings being the best selling magic set of all time. Uh, we see like new players coming into the game because of these products. The question is five years from now, 10 years from now, like, what does it look like? Like, does the fact that the focus and the most hype sets feature other IPs, does that lead to the magic IP and story continuing to just decline? Is there a point where Wizards is just like, right? Because like you said, right now, they're kind of like doing both and hedging their bets and you have the magic stories and also the universes beyond. Is there a point though, where they're just like, forget it, we'll just be fully universes beyond and like, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. So I feel like in the short term, this is probably going to be a good thing. In the long term, a little bit, a little bit scary.
what's your current relationship to magic are you are you still as excited as ever like where has it been ebbing and flowing for you just i i don't know like compare yourself to where you were mentally with magic five years ago to now like has there been any any changes and if so why so i think in some ways i'm more excited for magic than i've ever been part of the as much as we can rightly, I think, complain about the release schedule and how many products there are, there's just so much now that there's always something new to be excited about. There's always a new card around the corner. There's always a new commander deck or something. So it's a very exciting time in that sense. On the other hand, I do think this is like, been one of the most awkward times for non-commander formats as far as actual gameplay, as far as actually like, playing a game of magic i think i in a lot of formats enjoyed it more years ago than i did now so more excited for magic overall as a game and as a, a property but in some ways less excited about actual like some of the actual 60 card formats like modern or pioneer where i still enjoy them but i think for me that they peaked uh, a few years ago before some of the the power creep and universes beyond and some of the other changes what what is it about the 60 card formats that you may feel less excited about is it the power creep like if you could diagnose what's going on or is it simply the emphasis on commander or like what i don't know it's hard to it's hard to break these things down of course but like what what like any theories on that so i don't know if this is fair or not but in some ways i feel like wizards just doesn't care about those formats very much at the moment i feel like and maybe this is shifting we've seen like the announcement to try to bring back paper standard we'll see if that actually works and the things they're doing are like the opposite of what i would do as far as like delaying rotation and stuff but at least they're saying that they care about it but i feel like the focus has shifted so heavily towards commander and wizards realize just like how big and popular that format is that the need to heavily support the 60 card formats kind of went out the window a little bit, in my opinion, and Wizards just went all in on, on printing commander cards. It'll be interesting to see if it shifts back. One thing Wizards has a long history of is I think they go too far when they, uh, when they decide to change directions, they often go too far in the direction in the they change direction, to, right? and then yeah. end up moderating and coming back in the middle. You see this with like, card designs you see this with set designs where they like uh, if you look at the first equipment or look at the first vehicles where they add this new thing and it's super busted and then they got to bring it back into the middle right you see this with the like the top five esport where they just dropped all paper play and we're all in on like gonna make this a an esport a digital game and then after a few years they kind of came back in the middle where they still support arena but they're doing paper pro tours again now as well so I think that we might see a shift back to a, a healthier balance where Wizards, the light bulb went on that like, wow, this commander thing is huge. People love this. We really got to make a lot of cards for it. And I think they went too far that direction and hopefully they swing back. And I think they might be swinging back by some of the things they've said recently and done recently towards more of a middle ground where you can, you can have both. Because I think they're going to realize that like, the proxying thing is very interesting to me. Like there's such a movement because of the magic 30, I think really push into overdrive, but there's such a movement towards proxying and casual formats. And now we've seen it come up again with the price of commander masters just being so mm -hmm. high where you have people saying like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna proxy. I'm not gonna actually buy real cards anymore. And if that becomes a, a real movement in the commander community, I think that could be something that could push wizards back towards supporting 60 card formats for because in commander you can i was thinking about this other day like commander you could not buy a magic set for five years and pull out your deck and right there's have no there's much no sanctioned tournaments that there's require no you there's to... no tournaments you don't have to buy the latest hot cards you don't have to keep up with the latest set but in standard or even modern or pioneer these days if you skip a set you're going to be really far behind if you skip two sets you're kind of you know almost starting over so i i wonder if that will push wizards back towards more of a middle ground where they put more effort into supporting 60 card formats along with supporting commander. Yeah, I think I think there's possibilities for win-win, right? It's possible for something to be good for the bottom line and also lead to a better play experience for uh for magic players. Now, of yeah. course, the the magic players are also in very different groups, so it's very difficult to just 
and do all that in one fell swoop. But hopefully, like you said, I feel like there are certain incentives that might line up to produce uh, good results. So, yeah, I, I yeah. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that the last like couple of years, and I think Power Creep also played into it. We mentioned that a little bit. We have seen just like. 2019 to 2021 was just like such an era of like fire design power creep stuff that I think ended up kind of being a negative, especially for non-standard formats where it pushed out a lot of old beloved staples and replaced them with new cards. And I think that that's also improved recently. Like maybe that sounds silly to say when the one ring is like dominating or Rokrish Bowmasters is really good, but I feel like Wizards is reeled back in on the power creep to some extent, which would also be helpful for those formats going forward. So I'm actually very hopeful that 60-card formats bottomed out like a year or two ago, and they're actually like on the upswing now. I'm sorry, you have to remind me, like, uh, there was a podcast episode you folks did about Commander. Like, there was was one I remember because I listened to it, but I can't remember the exact subject now. It was about, like, is Commander good for Magic, like, being the top dog format was that what yeah, it was it was yeah God, yeah something i don't remember the exact title like, can <laughs> commander be magic's premier format or so it was something like that but yeah basically what you were saying yeah yeah i mean I, i'm just curious if you if you still remember getting comments on that because it's at the time listening to it it felt like a very uh contrarian view right now obviously i know you guys are coming at it from the right place you're just looking at it from different angles and like yeah what's the good and bad of commander being the the top dog but i'm curious if you had any interesting feedback from the community on that or or not it's one of those topics that people either like strongly agreed with or strongly disagreed with there wasn't there wasn't much middle ground very polarizing very polarizing where yeah either people were like yeah you're like this is commander can't be the format for this reason or whatever or the the opposite where you guys are like i don't even know what you're talking about commander is like the greatest thing ever and you know going to be the way magic is for the next 20 years so very 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 polarizing from what i remember the feedback I don't, that was a while ago, so I don't remember any, like, specific pieces of feedback from that one, but uh, I remember it being very polarized. Yeah, um, that's fair. I, I feel like you're doing so much content that, uh, you know, things get very mixed up, and there's so many uh, new topics every week. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll just end with one question, which is, yeah, what are your thoughts about the MTG Ambassador program? I know you've tweeted a little bit about it. I, am I actually? I'm not supposed to say tweeted, right? And you're supposed to say <laughs> X or posted. I, I don't know. Like I just realized the other day, it's no longer called retweet. It's called the repost. Um, anywho, um, I'm just gonna keep calling it Twitter. Yeah, but me too. That's, that's that's my problem. Um, like you recently said things publicly about it, but I'm curious if you could elaborate a bit more. Like, just what are your thoughts about? Or maybe not even a ambassadorship, but just about sponsorship in general, right? Sponsorship is really interesting. I, I kind of personally view sponsorship as like a necessary evil, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Like, uh, in the perfect world, you wouldn't even need sponsors because you would just like be have enough money to eat and whatever, and you could make whatever content you wanted, and you wouldn't have to worry about like having a sponsor putting an ad in it. But that's not the world we live in. And people, people, you know, you got to pay your rent and you got to eat. So I think that sponsorship is something that is necessary. I think the ambassador program, there's some things I really like about it. I like that this is a way that people who are making magic content are, I, I guess I was kind of hoping they would actually get money rather than cards, but they're getting something of value that they can theoretically use to like help support themselves and keep me uh, making magic content. I think the more people making magic content, the better it is for the game. And I think that's a, that's a great thing. I think being sponsored by wizards in specific is like a little bit tricky because if you're sponsored by something, it's a, it's essentially an ad, right? And it, it's, we like to think that we're not biased, But if you're sponsored by something, I think naturally your brain is going to be biased. I don't think there's any way around that. Like, so there's this very tough position. If you're sponsored by wizards, do people view your content as an ad where they need to think, okay, like, I know you love magic and I get what you're saying, but are you saying this authentically? Are you saying this because your sponsor wants you to say it? That's a very tricky position to be in. So as much as I'm glad to see creators being supported and getting uh, these products and getting this money or whatever the the benefits are, 
I also empathize because it's a tough position to be in to walk that line between uh, being authentic and uh, supporting your sponsor. So it'll be very interesting to see how it shakes out. I know for me personally, I, uh, I think that sponsorships, I've been super lucky because the two biggest sponsors we have are uh, Card Kingdom and also uh, Card Conduit, which is uh, a spring off of Card Hoarder originally. But they're companies that I used before I ever made content. I was buying cards and selling cards to Card Kingdom. So it made it very easy, uh, easy to uh, have them be sponsors and promote them and feel like I was doing that authentically and not just doing it as an advertisement. But I, there's been so many sponsors over the years. I think I've turned down way, way more sponsorship offers than I've actually accepted because I'm just very, very cautious with that stuff. I've used sponsorship as like selling part of yourself and your authenticity for money. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a, a fine line to walk. I think you gotta do it because you gotta eat, but if you do it too much, you might lose part of who you are and who your content is. Did you at any point consider uh, being an MTG ambassador? No, uh, I value being able to say, I, so I don't know the details of the ambassadorship with like mm -hmm. what you can and can't say, but I do know if I'm, uh, I would never go out and trash Card Kingdom, our big sponsor, because they sponsor us. Uh, mm -hmm. Luckily, I've never had a situation where I felt like I needed to, so that hasn't actually been any sort of conflict, because I think Card Kingdom mm -hmm. is like a great company that has uh, been very good about things. I don't want to be in that position with the game of magic, though. I really value mm. being able to feel like I can say whatever I want about the game, whether that be positive and about how awesome it is or negative and about what is something that I think is wrong or needs to be changed. And I know for me personally, like being in the ambassador program, whether or not it's explicitly part of the contract, it would make me feel uncomfortable, like being as critical as I want the freedom to be in some scenarios so mm. for me i don't think uh i don't think it would be worth the cost mm -hmm. so it speaks to the authenticity element right like you want to or you want to have that uh maybe not authenticity but just like you want to have that impartial uh for lack of a better term like brand of of who you are and not not feel like or have others feel like that has to be like there's some sort of other motive behind what yeah. you say or what you express is that yeah, yeah exactly and there's like i said i'm super glad for all the people that are in the ambassador program and i don't think there's anything wrong with that i just i don't think it's a a fit for what I want to do. And I think there's, there's so many sponsors like that, where there's people who sponsor people I know, and they're great sponsors for them, but there's just not something that's for me personally, like a, an energy drink or something. Like I, I don't do, I don't drink energy drinks. I don't really want to be like promoting an energy drink that I don't even drink. It just feels weird. That doesn't mean it's wrong for anyone to be sponsored by an energy drink. If that's the perfect fit for you, I'm, I'm super thankful that that's working out for you. It's just not a, not a fit for me personally. So I think that's, that's kind of how I view the ambassador program personally. I think it can lead to some good things, although there are certainly challenges uh, with with how it's going to be managed and how it's going to play out in practice. But uh, I'm super happy for everyone that's benefiting from it, even if it's not a thing that I think is a good fit for me. Hey, Seth, I, I really appreciate all of your, um, your willingness to answer all, all this, all these curveball questions <laughs> I threw at you today. Uh, thank you so much for being uh, such an open book. I feel like you're, living the values that you mentioned, which is like being authentic and just, just expressing what's on your mind. I, I really, I really do appreciate you taking me down, uh, some of the answers today and also just being so open with like how you, the process of making content for you. I thank you so much for, uh, taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. It was, it was super fun. So yeah, it was, it was a blast. Thank you for listening to Humans of Magic. You've made it to the end. Thanks so much. You're awesome. If you'd like to support the show, there are two ways to do so. The first way is the most powerful. Tell a friend. Tell them to check out Humans of Magic. I'd love it if you could spread the word. The second way is to join the Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Patreon is the best way to directly support the show from a financial perspective. For as little as $2 a month, you can support me and join the Discord. It gives me the power to keep cranking out new episodes with your favorite magic people. 
If you want to go the $5 support route, you'll get a digital copy of the Humans of Magic book. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you, as always, making it all the way to the end, and we'll see you next time.